0: Good morning. You turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. We will conclude our time looking at this letter to a young pastor, Titus chapter 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Holy Spirit, we ask once again that you would come and make clear the truth of your most holy word, that you would press it down into our lives and that we would not be the same because we have sat under the voice of the living God speaking to us this morning. All for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen to this extended quote about a family taking their adopted daughter to Disney World. So for a little context, she had been adopted before by a first family and eventually they dissolved their adoption. And so she was adopted a second time as an eight-year-old girl. Here's a long quote. I never dreamed that taking a child to Disney World could be so difficult, or that such a trip could teach me so much about God's outrageous grace. For one reason or another, whenever our daughter's previous family vacationed to Disney World, they took their biological children with them, but they left their adopted daughter with a family friend. Usually, at least, in the child's mind, this happened because she did something wrong that precluded her from going on the trip. And so by the time we adopted our daughter, she had seen many pictures of Disney World, and she'd heard about the rides and the characters and the parades. But when it came time to passing through the gates of the magical kingdom, she had always been left outside. Once I found out about this, I made plans to take her to Disney World. I had thought I'd mastered the Disney World drill, but what I didn't expect was that the prospect of visiting this dream world would produce a stream of downright devilish behavior in our newest daughter. In the month leading up to our trip, she stole food when a simple request would have gained her a snack. She lied when it would have been easier to tell the truth. She whispered insults that were carefully crafted to hurt her older sister as deeply as possible. And as the days on the calendar moved closer to the trip, her mutinies multiplied. A couple days before our family headed to Florida, I pulled our daughter into my lap to talk through her latest escapade. I know what you're going to do, she stated flatly. You're not going to take me to Disney World, are you? I thought, the thought actually hadn't crossed my mind, but her downward spiral suddenly started to make more sense. She knew she couldn't earn her way into the magical kingdom. She had tried that and failed several times. So she placed herself as far as possible away from the most magical place on earth. I asked her, is this trip something we're doing as a family? She nodded, brown eyes wide and tear-rimmed. Are you a part of this family? Again, she nodded. Then you are going with us. Sure, there may be consequences to help you remember what is right and what is wrong, but you are a part of this family, and we are not leaving you behind. That is an excerpt from the book Proof, by Daniel Montgomery and Timothy Paul Jones. Highly recommend that you pick up that book and work through it. Proof, P-R-O-O-F. It is a fitting introduction to today's sermon because of his discussion of outrageous grace. Because that is essentially to summarize the thrust of Titus's argument here in chapter 3. We will look at this text under four points. Again, proving that Baptists are not slaves to three-point sermons here's our four points on the board. As you can see how the church behaves in the world, how God saves his people, how to discipline divisive people, and how to put these things into practice. So first, how the church behaves in the world. Look again at verses one through three with me. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, To avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. He opens with, Remind them. Two shifts have kind of taken place, and that in chapter two, we saw teach. So to to instruct maybe in some new things, you might say, but remind is clearly something they already would have known. And them, now he's specifically speaking about the church as a community, as a corporate body, you could say. Remind them to live a certain way, in particular to live submissively and and obediently to authorities. And this would have been common sense in the Greco-Roman culture. You want to defy authorities. And so he says, remind them that this is the reality of how you're supposed to live. Speak no evil of anyone. Now, what is, of course, shocking is we read that in our day, and that almost seems backward to the entire cultural situation. Because uh, almost all political conversation today is essentially characterized by speaking evil. It's all ad hominem. It's all attacks. It's It's all seeking to blow up people. And so because of that... All of our politicians have to do as much grandstanding, or the, the new term the younger folks like to use is virtue signaling, to try and demonstrate how much virtue they have so the, the next attack doesn't completely wipe out the, the scales of virtue and vice, as it were. Let me, let me give you an example of this. This past week, President Trump retweeted a compliment from an author. This is what the author said. President Trump is the greatest president for Jews and for Israel in the history of the world, not just America. And the Jewish people in Israel love him like he is the king of Israel. They love him like he is the second coming of God. I don't, I don't understand how a Jewish author could say that because Jews don't believe God has come yet. But leave that aside for a second. The, the truly just mind-blowing thing to me is that the president retweeted it. Like, if the author has that opinion, so be it. But the president's like, virtue signaling, like, look at how much I'm loved. It's just, It's fascinating. The the first thing that came to mind when I read this was, seriously, it was was the picture of Nebuchadnezzar from Daniel chapter 4. Remember, he stands and he looks at his vast kingdom, and he's like, I am amazing. And God humbles him, causes him to grow feathers and fangs and talons and to eat grass like a beast, to humble him. It's incredible the way that our political conversation is shaped by slander. And then responding with virtue signaling. We see it all over us. But here's the thing. Regardless of how much you may love or dislike our certain political figures, this text is quite clear. We are commanded to speak no evil about them. None. Speak no evil. And then did you notice the grounds, the reason in verse 3? Verse 3. You could actually say, because the reason we don't speak this way is because we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various lusts and passions. That's why we don't speak that way. We dare not imagine for a second that we are not just as capable of all the grandstanding and bloviating, that we ourselves know that we were saved by radical grace, as he's going to go on to say in this passage. But a second reason, if you're a Christian here this morning, why you simply must not get overly worked up on either end of the political spectrum, is because God is sovereign over the nations. Isaiah 40, 17, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Or the passage I mentioned before in Daniel chapter 4, when he finally gets his senses back. This is what he says in Daniel 4, 34 and 35. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and generation to generation He does according to his will among the hosts of heavens, among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Friends, we dare not get overly excited or overly depressed regarding any political posturing. How can we? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. See, this God who puts presidents and congresspeople and Supreme Court justices in and out of office. Of course, he uses the means of voters. Of course, he uses all sorts of means. But friends, as we sang today, he is sovereign over us and that includes our nations. So to be overly excited or depressed is just to deny God who he is. Not only are we to not slander to not, not say these things but to be obedient but First Timothy 2 will say that we are also commanded to pray for them regardless of who they are so let me ask a question how are you doing at not speaking evil about President Trump or flip, flip the script maybe you really don't want to say anything evil about him how did you do about not speaking evil about President Obama because one day the party's going to change the issue is us it's our behavior. It's our attitude. Are you avoiding quarreling with followers on whichever side? Or are you gentle and showing perfect courtesy to all? Again, friends, we dare not to allow our emotions about these things to cause us to act in such a way that God is not God. That's the point of verses 1 through 3. So with that in mind, he says, We were just like them, despicable, horrible, detestable, and yet we've been shown mercy, which brings us to the second point, how God saves his people. Look at verses 4 through 8a, just the first part of verse 8 there. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The ESV says, the saying is trustworthy. I prefer the NIV or CSB that sees that as a sentence, as this saying is trustworthy, or this is a trustworthy saying. We'll stop there. The long sentence of verse 4 through 7, once again, similar to the one in chapter 2. It has a compound subject, which is the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior. And the action is, Appeared. It has happened. It has is, it is presented itself in space, time, history. And how it is that this appearing has taken place is spelled out in verse 5. First, it says it didn't appear because of us, not from anything we did, but it did appear because of God, of his own mercy, he saved us. And then he gives us the means by which he saved us there. You see that? By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, And then finally, we get the purpose clause, as it were, that the result clause resulting in verse seven, we were justified. So why is it so important for him to, in this context where he speaks first about the fact that we we need to obey political leaders to then transition to our salvation being radically of mercy, why is that so important? Well, because as he started to do in chapter 2, and as he's going to do in a minute, he's going to press really hard on this issue of we are all called to be those who are living and doing good deeds, good works. But he has to clarify, I'm about to call you again to good works. But these good works flow from the radical mercy of God, which saved us. In other words, put it this way, no one by their good works, unlike the political system and unlike the pagan gods, as we'll talk about in a minute, Good works never buy you any credit with this God, because He saved you by sheer mercy, by pure grace. So instead, He says, "No one can owe God, because it's all of mercy." Uh, this Paul puts this same idea in, elsewhere in Romans eleven, in what was the Doxology or this hymn of praise in Romans eleven thirty-three through thirty-six. He puts this idea. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given to him that it might be repaid. Rhetorical question, nobody for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. No one can put God in their debt. He saves by pure mercy. Our good works don't earn us anything. Now, the reason why this is so important for us in our day is similar to theirs and theirs. See, in their day, why this was so important to hear was this. The ancient pagan gods worked like this. They worked on like a I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine mentality. So what you would do is you would go to the gods and you would do a sacrifice. Kind of like, hey, I was really nice to you, Poseidon. I got to go on a sea voyage. Don't drown me. Don't sink my ship. So you'd scratch the gods back and you'd hope that he would be favorable to you. That's the way it worked in the ancient world with the, the pagan deities. You scratch God's back, he scratch yours. Well, what's the problem? Well, you spent much time reading anything about the ancient pagan deities, they were pretty moody. And they would be like, eh, I decided I'm not that favorable with you. And they might shipwreck you anyway. So that was the ancient reason. That's why it was so important to press this salvation by the radical mercy of God alone. But here's why it's so important for us today. is because, here's the thing. Our culture, and it's seeped into Christianity has totally bought into this stuff. We've just changed the name. We call it karma. So many people today, you walk out on the street and you talk to your average person and they just assume karma is a universal law of nature. Something good happens to somebody. Oh man, I've been working on my karma. Something bad happens. Up, oh, karma's going to get you. You know, some people like to sit around waiting for karma to happen. You know, they're just like, I can't wait. That guy who cut me off, I hope he gets in an accident. And car- it's really wild. It really is. Particularly because an ancient, I mean, you go back and see the Buddhist karma. It works nothing like that. We've westernized it and, like, McDonaldized it. Like, your way right away karma. I don't, I don't understand. Seriously. But, but here's the thing about karma is it's seeped into the church. And so there's so much that passes as American Christianity, which is really just karma with a Jesus sticker on it. That's all it is. So here's an example. We, we, we find this particularly, the most potently, I would say, in the prosperity gospel and similar type things so here's an example Uh, bethel pastor bill johnson wrote this our success is simply a matter of radical obedience notice the connection success is radical obedience he goes on we make our way prosperous through obedience that's karma he says the same thing about healing It is important to recognize that progress of what God is doing in a person's body and give thanks. So as you see people getting better, you continue giving thanks because healing increases in an atmosphere of thankfulness. Do you see what he's saying? If you're good, if you're obedient, you scratch God's back and he scratches yours. That's not Christianity. That is karma with a Jesus sticker on it. Paul says none of it he will have none of it he says this god this savior this holy spirit you can't scratch his back he saves from the radical mercy and grace alone not from works which you've done you cannot do works to change this god no he's the one who works And he, verse 7, said the result of God's work of mercy and grace being poured out in someone's life is that they are justified. We saw this in our catechism. They are declared righteous by God. And our status as heir, our inheritance is assured. Not because of works done by us. We're like the little girl. We cannot earn our way there. Someone else had to pay for our trip. Had to take us there. So here's a radically practical reason for this lesson, that God never owes us anything. Uh, Ray Ortland's little book, Gospel, you can get it, it's free in the back, we give them away, it's a little green book. He says this, the doctrine of grace creates a culture of grace where good things happen to bad people. A gracious church culture proves that Jesus is the holy one who forgives sinners. He's the king who befriends sinners his enemies friends if we are saved by grace alone then the ground is completely level at the foot of the cross there are no super saints there's no one who got in because they were a little better no the ground is level at the foot of the cross so praise god for an opportunity yesterday to have a block party and to invite people from the neighborhood some of which are living some radically broken lives and in to sit down with them and say here is the gospel you too can be saved. Repent and believe in the king. I thank God for many of you who got to have conversations like that yesterday, continue to pray for this neighborhood. But no matter how messed up someone's life is, because we are saved by grace alone, then we all come on the same basis because of who he is and what he has done. Now, perhaps you're here today and you're not a Christian. You have not come to repent and believe in Jesus I wonder if you've ever felt that Christianity is basically about cleaning yourself up. It's basically about me being the moral better. It's about just being polished. I hope you see that is the exact opposite of Paul's argument here. Paul's argument is that the difference between who we were and who we are is that the goodness and loving kindness of God has appeared and he has saved us by mercy and grace alone. A second insight from this understanding that God saves us through radical grace is this, is that if you're a Christian here today, you should be overflowing with joy and awe and wonder that he saved you by sheer grace. I'll illustrate this with a comedian years ago was on a, a, a night, one of those like late night shows or something, and he was talking about how everything is amazing, but nobody's happy. We're all these complainers. And he talks about how ungrateful our culture is. He says, you know, people want to talk about delays, you know, delays, airline delays. He's like, delays? New York to L.A. in five hours, and you want to talk about delays? Really? He's like, I sat on the runway for 20 minutes, and then we, tra- we, we traveled out, and it was 40 more minutes before we took off. And he's like, and then what happened? Did you partake of the miracle of flight, you non-contributing zero did you sit in a plane in the sky as you traveled across the globe? He's like, five hours. It used to be 30 years to get from New York to L.A. Half of you would die. Another half of you would be born. And you want to talk about delays? But, but here's the best part. He says, he goes, seriously, we, we, just, we don't think about this stuff. He goes, every second of every flight, every passenger should be sitting there just going, wow. Because you're sitting in a chair in the sky. But, but friends, wait a second. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you are partaking of something so much more wondrous than human flight. You have tasted of the heavenly gift. You are seated in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2 says. So friends, our lives had better overflow in awe and wonder and joy. Because we've been saved by radical grace. But realizing we've been saved by grace, realizing that this sound doctrine is the thing, he says there in verse 8, that is a trustworthy saying. It means we we have to protect it. We have to be careful. And so that's going to bring us to how to discipline divisive people. Look at verse 8b through 11. 8b through 11. And I want you to insist on these things. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law. They are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and self-condemned. Did you see the contrast laid out here? Paul does this a lot in this letter. Verse 9 and verse 8 contrast some things. So first, there's those who have believed God are devoted to good works, and they are to avoid controversies and quarrels. Good works are excellent and profitable. Quarrels and controversies are worthless and unprofitable. You see, he's he's, just like he did in chapter 1, he's pitting these things against each other. And Paul goes on to detail how to discipline a person who stirs up division, is divisive. The the original word there is hereticos, a heretic in the classic sense. Now that has come to mean someone who splits off of or divides or breaks off of established orthodox truth, but it was a person who was doing the same kind of thing here and they were splitting off, they were divisive, they were teaching something false, and they were causing divisions in the body. So Paul lays out a form of church discipline. And this is church discipline similar to what we find in Matthew 18. That if a brother or sister sins, you go to them. And you go to them again with someone else. And then finally, if they still will not listen, you bring them before the church. Because the church is the one with the final authority. They're the ones with the keys to the kingdom to bind and loosen. But here's the thing. The moment you hear that, particularly if maybe you're here today and you're from a church background that hasn't done church discipline or you're not a Christian... The practice of church discipline sounds a little brutal. I mean, it sounds harsh. Like you're excluding people? I mean, what if they're just genuinely curious? What if they're asking questions? What if they're trying to figure things out and you're sitting there kicking them out? Well, that's why there's a process of you go once and then you go twice, you go once. Notice you're teaching something that is false. Stop. The point is to restore them. That's why there's two. You go once and you plead with them to bring them back, to restore them. You go again if they continue to plead with them, to bring them back and restore them. All discipline is restorative. You're seeking to re- re- repair the relationship and the brokenness there. But there's still this question of like, but I mean, our whole culture feels that excluding people is basically evil. It's, it's bad to exclude anyone. But is it? Let me give you a, a personal example from my own life. So I grew up, and my dad, uh, when he was sober, was one of my favorite people. He was wonderful. But he had a lifelong struggle, for the most part, with drugs and alcohol. And in the deepest throes of his heroin addiction, uh, he he would steal and do everything he could to to support his addiction. It would have been the most unloving thing imaginable if I just kept handing him money. I would have been funding his destroying of his life and soul. Do you see the problem here? If a person is in the throes of addiction, they're so blind to the truth and reality That you have to, for their sake, for their safety, you have to exclude them. You have to protect them from themselves. That's what church discipline is. When the body of the church sees someone doing something and going in a direction, that's going to destroy their soul. And so we step in and seek to exclude them, to protect them from themselves with the hope of restoring them, with the hope of bringing them back. So I would just say, friends, Church discipline is, is, is not harsh at all. It is the most loving thing you can do. And that is also why you have to have church membership. Because that tells you who it is you have the authority to and who you are responsible to care for. Praise God, I am not responsible to go park on Benny Hinn's or Todd White's or Bill Johnson's front door and tell him you're a false teacher. That, that's not my responsibility. We're called to care for the members of this church. We covenanted together as the members of the gathering church to care for each other, to hold each other's hands and walk each other back to Jesus when one is straying. So you have to have membership in order to obey the command to discipline. Otherwise, you have no grid to do it. There's one other little point here you have to see. Did you notice how verse 9 and then verse 10, there's another contrast that plays out? All of a sudden, now there's these false teachers that are foolish and unprofitable. But then in verse 10, it says, And warn him once and have nothing to do with him. But the, the context here is interesting because what it's doing is it's going to contrast good works with false teaching. So good works with good teaching and false works with false teaching, as it were. You'll see this play out in the next section, in our, our last point here. So look at these last things, how to put these things into practice. Verse 12 through 15. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send their greetings to you. Greet those who love us in faith. Grace be with you all. Do You see, now that's where the contrast comes out. He says, speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way, which means you're devoting yourself to good works, to not be unfruitful. So good works in this section is primarily bound up with gospel ministry. It's primarily bound up with making sure that the gospel continues to go out. That is contrasted with the false teaching that's going on above. Do your best to speed them along. That's what it looks like. There's an evangelistic purpose to mission to the work of the church. As we saw in the last chapter, we saw that as Paul wrote to the different groups, the old men and old women and young women and young men, and he said, what? That you are to adorn the gospel. Well, it's the same thing you have here, the same concept, but Paul connects it specifically with good works and gospel mission. Every Christian is a missionary. Mark Dever says it poignantly. He says, if you say to me, I'm a Christian, but I don't disciple, I want to say, I don't know what you mean by that. Because by definition, a Christian is someone who disciples people and is being discipled. He says, I'm a Christian, but I don't evangelize. He says, I don't know what you mean by that. Because a Christian, by definition, is someone who evangelizes. That's what a Christian is. And that's what good works are devoted to, Christian mission, evangelism. But let me practically kind of show you how this has also worked out in the rest of the New Testament. Paul's prayers are radically evangelistic and discipleship focused. Go through Paul's prayers, and you will see over and over again how he prays for people to grow in their love and awe of the gospel. Let me give you an example from Ephesians 1, 15 through 19. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith from the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and of knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. Christian. A regular part of your prayer life should be pleading that the fellow members of this church would see and taste and know the glory of God. Members of the gathering church, you have that church directory for a reason. We're working on updating it but so you can pray through the members that they too, that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened. That they would taste. That as Paul's going to go on to pray in Ephesians 3, that they would know the love of God would surpass his knowledge. That's what we pray for each other. And this is one of the things that the elders are discussing. That is, we we took the summer off of the evening prayer, but we want to make this one of the central elements that we focus on in the Sunday evening prayer. Is that we are called to good works, which primarily in this text are talking about mission and evangelism that we want to pray for individual opportunities as people come to prayer. I'm I'm witnessing to my neighbor, and we want to pray for that. I I have an opportunity at my my work, someone, a colleague, we want to pray for that. And so we, we are excited to kick that back off in the fall, and we hope that that will be a priority for you to come as we pray for good works in the shape of gospel, ministry, and mission. So with that, friends, we have come to the end of this letter to a young pastor. We have walked through Titus. So if you're someone who likes big ideas, kind of conca- con, you know, encapsulated, here's a couple ways to summarize this book. God's authority flows downhill by calling elders to live and teach in such a way that the church will be protected from false teachers and that they will grow in their knowledge of sound doctrine and in godly living, which includes a longing to serve So as the message of God's grace continues to go out. Or you can use verse 8, slightly paraphrased, because it summarizes the the whole letter. I want you to insist on these things. These things, the gospel and sound doctrine, the health-giving doctrine, so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works of evangelism and mission, because these things are excellent and profitable. For all people. That is Titus. But as you can tell, we we have to go at a certain pace. So there's so many more layers and there's so much more to this book. And I want to draw out just one gem that is so wonderful from that big sentence there in verse 4 through 7. So one more time, look at it with me. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness... But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What is missing in those verses contrasted with the way American Christianity typically talks about salvation? When we typically talk about, I mean, clearly, that's a verse just explaining salvation, how it works. When much of American Christianity talks about salvation, they typically start with us, with having faith. But read that sentence, and you will look in vain. It's not there. There's no mention of it. Now, that's not to say that faith is not required. Of course it is. Every time he says, do good works, that's an outflow of faith. The letter began in Titus 1.1 for the sake of the faith of God's elect. So that's not my point, is that faith is somehow excluded. My point is this. We, by default, start our theology with men and what men need to do with humanity. But Paul starts with God. We look at salvation through our lens. Paul looks at God's lens, and he shows us. See, this is an incredible thing. Because a key reason why Paul starts with God and focuses on God and doesn't even mention our part is because, friends, our faith is not strengthened by talking about our faith. Our faith is strengthened by talking about, declaring, meditating, and exulting in the object of our faith, the God on whom we believe in, by focusing on who God is and what he has done for us. That's why the vast majority of the prayers that we pray, should begin as Jesus taught us. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And they should end back on the rock of Christ for his sake. That's why the vast majority of the songs we sing should be about God, who he is, what he has done. Singing about me doesn't last all that long because I stink. I'm going to fall apart. I'm going to fail. But he won't. So we sing about him. We pray about him. Now the one last thing from this verse is flip back to Ezekiel chapter 36, which we read earlier in the service. Because you're going to notice how this sentence in particular, and really the whole letter of Titus, he was spending much time meditating on Ezekiel. So if you flip back to Ezekiel 36, we'll look at verse 22. And you will also be triggered to all these little hooks that he's been giving us throughout this letter we'll read 22 through verse 27 therefore say to the house of israel thus says the lord god it is not for your sake O house of israel that i am about to act but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you came and i will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations which you have profaned among them And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord. When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. Think of purity in first chapter. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. Do you notice how God-centered that prophecy is? It's not because of you. It has nothing to do with you. I'll act because of my name. I will purify. I will cleanse. I will take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. It's all God. It is all what God will do. And then he has that weird line, though. He says, I will vindicate through you. I will vindicate my holiness. How does that happen? Well, that's what Paul picks up on in Titus 3, in our sentence. When he says, you've been regenerated and renewed by the Holy Spirit, whom was poured out. The Greek word ekeo was, was poured out on us richly. So the first readers would have probably known enough of Ezekiel to know that the word ek keo shows up some 14 times before this passage in Ezekiel. And every single time it is talking about God pouring out his wrath. Because you profaned my name. Because you. So the only way that God could vindicate his name through you was to pour out his wrath. But, friends, that's the gospel. God did pour out his wrath he poured it out on Christ so that he could pour out his spirit on us. So he could pour out his mercy and grace and he could take those who deserve the wrath of God and he could make them those with new hearts, full of his spirit and life, all by grace alone. So remember how we opened with the story of the little girl who was shown grace, who was brought nothing she could earn? Well, the story continues, but not the way you would think. He writes this. I'd like to say that her behavior grew better after that moment. It didn't. Her choices pretty much spiraled out of control. Every hotel and rest stop, all the way to Lake Buena Vista. Still, we headed to Disney World on the day we promised, and it was a typical Disney day. Overpriced meals and lots of lines, mingled with just enough manufactured magic to consider maybe going again someday. In our hotel room that evening, a very different child emerged. She was exhausted, pensive, and a little weepy. But her month-long facade of rebellion had faded. When bedtime rolled around, I prayed with her and held her and asked her, So, how was your first day at Disney World? She closed her eyes and snuggled into her stuffed unicorn. And after a few moments, she opened her eyes ever so slightly. And she said, Daddy, I finally got to go to Disney World. But it wasn't because I was good. It's because I am yours. I finally got to go, not because I was good, but because I'm yours. Friends, that's what it means to have the Holy Spirit poured out on you, to be saved by the radical mercy of God to experience the outrageous grace of God. If you have questions about what that looks like, I'll be in the hall afterwards. would love to talk with you more. But I hope you've enjoyed our time in this letter to a young pastor where sound doctrine, the grace of God, flows out of his people's life to be light in the.